After Cindy read those words, she looked at me like, whoa. <laughs> like, that's heavy stuff. Thanks for reading, Cindy. Um, yeah, we, we always say that children are welcome in the services, but then I read Amos and I think maybe we should reconsider our PG rating. But uh, yeah, pretty tough stuff. And we are looking at Amos um, over the course of this month of September, and we're looking at the theme of justice. And I want to start with a disclaimer that I maybe should say at the beginning of every one of these sermons, justice is a massive conversation. It's huge. And there's so many facets and nuances. There's so, so much of the separation of church and state that comes into this. There's so much of a difference between what we do as individuals in terms of justice and what we do as communities. I'm going to have to limit what I say here because it's such a large topic. So the sermons aren't like a full course meal. It's more like a sample platter, you know, and you taste a bit of this and you taste a bit of that. And eventually you're going to taste something and say, I want more of that. And that's my hope with this topic of justice is that it will inspire you to actually explore a bit more and to dig into what the Bible says about biblical justice. And so I want to stay in my lane. I want to offer some biblical context, and then you can take that into bigger and broader conversations that you have wherever those conversations take place. Okay, so Amos. Amos is our favorite blue-collar prophet. Uh, last week I called him a redneck. That was going too far. Uh, but he is a blue-collar prophet in the sense that he's got no official credentials. He didn't go to prophet school, and there was one, by the way. He didn't have a pedigree. He didn't have friends in high places like Isaiah had. He didn't even have a mentor like Elisha had. He just had a message from God. That was his qualification. He had a message from God, and even though he was from the southern kingdom of Judah, he was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel to deliver this message. Now, Israel, under Jeroboam II, because this is a true story that happened in a real place at a real time, verified by history, just keep that in mind, uh, Israel under Jeroboam II could be characterized by the following words, security, affluence, power, prosperity, opulence. Those are words that you would use to quantify or talk about uh, the northern kingdom of Israel during that time. It was a great place to be. Like if you wanted to go to any time period, Israel was great as long as you weren't poor or a foreigner or a widow or an orphan or somehow vulnerable because of an illness or because of a disease, right? But as long as you're in that percentage of people that had relative affluence and health and prosperity, this was a great place to be. The problem was they had empty worship and they oppressed the poor. Minor details. But that's what was happening in Israel at the time. And so Amos goes to Israel and his message is basically this. You stand condemned because you have forgotten God and because you oppress the poor. I think it's a message that's relevant for me in my time, in my generation, in this place as well. And that's what makes it so difficult to preach it, <laughs> but it also makes it difficult to live it out and to apply it. But in this, my hope is that we'll catch a sense of God's heart. Because God's heart, as he says to the people in the north, 
Uh, I despise your empty, hypocritical worship, and I loathe your fancy houses. Instead, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. So that's God's heart. It's not that he's against having nice houses. It's not that he's against those kind of things. But when we do that and forget both that those blessings come from God and forget that other people don't have those opportunities, then it becomes a problem. That is the hypocrisy in Israel going to church, going to temple, saying all the right words, and then going home and treating the people around them like crap. That's what um, Amos objected to, and that's the message he had. So we have these two words, righteousness and justice, and we're going to throw a slide up with a bit of a definition that we gave last week, because although they're very similar and sometimes used interchangeably, righteousness essentially means this. It's a standard of right, equitable relationships between people, no matter their social differences. God is all about righteousness. That's why it comes from his character. He is righteous. And then justice is the concrete action that we take to correct injustice and to move toward righteousness. So we're talking about biblical justice in that sense. We want to create these equitable relationships, no matter social standing. In order to do that, we have to behave in a just way toward one another, and that's very important. And both these words reveal the heart of justice that's found in the character of God. That's what we discovered last week. If you want to start with justice, start by connecting to God's character. Make sure we're connected there first, because justice will flow from a healthy, loving relationship with God. At least it should. If it's not flowing from a healthy, loving relationship with God, then we're blocking it by our sin or something else, right? So both these words reveal that the heart of justice is found in the character of God. Now, you may not have thought of justice in this way before, but here I'm going to give another definition for justice because it's summed up in the two great commandments that are found in the Bible. The two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's justice. That's what we're trying to talk about. That's, that's what we need to do to move toward uh, what we're called to behave and, and live like within community. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's because there's really just two great sins in the Bible. I know you thought maybe there's a whole list of sins, but there's really only two. The first one, idolatry, not loving God with all our heart. And the second is inhospitality not loving our neighbor as ourself. So that's what justice looks like, following those two basic rules. And that's why I love this quote uh, from the Baptist preacher, uh, Haddon Robinson, and it really strikes at the heart, and we're going to throw that on the screen. It's actually something I found on Facebook. Uh, Haddon Robinson highlights three questions that get to the core of our spiritual life. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbors? Do you mind if I ask them? It's true, right? I mean, this is all through the Bible. It's not just here in Amos. It's everywhere you turn, every page you turn to just about. You come into the New Testament, and, and John is saying the exact same thing. You know, you say you love God, but you hate your brother. Well, then you don't love God. You can't say you love God and then go out and hate people. That's not the way it works. That shows that you don't love God. James says the same thing. You believe in God? Good. So do the demons. And they tremble at least. But show me your faith by your works. That's the problem. That was the problem with Israel. They had this, this speech. They had all the right words. 
They had all the right prayers. They had all the right rituals, but they weren't loving their neighbor. And that's the issue that we have here. So in the book of Amos, if you wanted a really quick uh, structure, if you're trying to read through it and you're wondering how it's arranged, uh, the first couple of chapters, chapters one and two, those are the prophecies of Amos. Uh, Chapters three to six, those are the sermons of Amos. And chapter seven to nine, those are the visions of Amos, or as Warren Wearsby puts it, and I love this, in chapters one and two, Amos looks around. Chapters three to six, Amos looks within. And chapters seven to nine, Amos looks ahead, and there's a little tiny piece of hope right at the end of the book. So hold on, hold on for that as we go through. So today, as we go to the sample platter of this sermon, uh, we just want to get a taste for the hallmarks of biblical justice. What does it look like? What are the components? And we want to do so by asking two important questions. The first one is this, why was God so angry? And then the second one is, what did Israel forget? Okay, so two simple questions. First of all, why was God so angry? Do you ever get the impression that God is always angry in the Old Testament? I I think we have that impression, don't we? Um, If we're honest, and if we were talking to our friends that maybe don't attend church or, or workmates, that God always just seems to be very angry. It's not actually true. Uh, if you read carefully, there's some beautiful, beautiful sections of relationship and love and promise and hope in the Old Testament. But to be fair, there's also a lot of anger. But here's my challenge to you. Have you ever stopped to ask why God is angry? Why is he so angry? Well, Amos gives us insight into that, and he does a very crafty, kind of brilliant thing in chapters 1 and 2 in in how he delivers this prophecy. First of all, he uses this literary device. Did you hear it in the reading? Um, For three sins and even four. It's like, so is that all there were? Because he says three sins, and then he says four, but then he actually only goes on to name one or two. It's like, so (laughs) how many sins are we talking about here? Why are you speaking in riddles? But that idea of three sins and even four is a sense of three is a number of completion. That's the full set of sins, in a sense. Four, you've gone over the top with your sins. This is is an overflowing number of sins. It's so obvious that in a court of law where you had to have two or three witnesses, I don't have just have two or three. I've got a fourth in the back that I can bring out. It's super obvious that you're guilty. That's what he's saying to all the nations and to all of Israel. But the way he does it is he starts with all the nations that surround Israel in chapters one and heading into chapters two. And if you were to map this out, it would be kind of fascinating to see the circle, apart from the Mediterranean Sea, but to see the circle right around Israel that's formed as he names Damascus and Philistia, Philistia and Tyre and Edom, which is not a cheese, by the way. It's a different Edom. Anyway, Ammon and Moab and even Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah gets a mention in this. And I think at this point, um, Israel's going, yeah, preach it, Amos. This is awesome. So what does Amos call out the nations for? Well, here's why God is angry. They ignored the rules of engagement in battle. They broke treaties that they had made. They sold whole communities into slavery. They ripped open pregnant women in order to gain land. That's a literal verse in there. 
and they rejected God's revelations and ignored his laws. Do you understand why God is angry? Wouldn't we be angry too? Shouldn't we be angry at this kind of stuff? That's why God is angry in this sense. But what Amos does here is so brilliant. He, he plays into Israel's sense of security by naming all the other nations first. And they're like, preach it. Go, brother. You tell them. You, especially Judah. We hate Judah. They're, they're always thinking they're better than us. They're always moral snobs. You lay into them, Amos. And then all of a sudden, Amos focuses in. Because what he's doing is he's not painting a picture. He's actually drawing a target. And if you look at it, there's a, a circle around and Israel is smack in the middle. And he lays into Israel in a way that he doesn't lay into any of the other nations because they were in covenant with God. They knew the terms of the agreement and they promised to uphold them and they didn't. They did this with full knowledge. I think we're sometimes like that, sometimes like Israel. We love it when everybody else around us is condemned because it makes us feel good. I think even on the international stage, we can say, look at that Taliban and their treatment of women and children. It's disgusting. Or we say, look at, look at the Mexicans and the Mexican government and how they uh, allow these drug cartels. It's so disappointing. Or maybe we say, look, look at the Chinese government and their treatment of foreign nationals. That, that's so disturbing. And we can name all these different people because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We're like, hey, we're doing pretty good here in Canada. We're doing all right compared to them. And then God hits us. God hits us and says, even in your affluence, your prosperity, and everything else, I still have something against you, something that you need to pay attention to. Now, all those things I named, they're legitimate examples of injustice in the world, and we need to address them. But don't just think that we need to address injustice somewhere else. That's the point. Justice starts at home. And that's what we really need to pick up from the way that Amos delivers all of this. So Amos goes to Israel and he says this. I'm going to read it again in the message translation so we get a, a different angle and a, a slightly different sense of this. He says, because of the three great sins of Israel, make that four. I'm not putting up with them any longer. They buy and sell upstanding people. People for them are only things, ways of making money. They'd sell a poor man for a pair of shoes. They'd sell their own grandmother. They grind the penniless into the dirt, shove the luckless into the ditch. Everyone and his brother sleeps with the sacred whore, a sacrilege against my holy name. Stuff they've extorted from the poor is piled up at the shrine of their God while they sit around drinking wine they've conned from their victims. See, what they were doing is, is the affluent at the time, because they weren't caring for the poor, they were still fining those who weren't paying back what they owed. And so they were fining them by having to pay back wine or having to pay back stuff. And then they were indulging themselves in all these things. And Amos calls them on it. So, this is the anger that God has toward injustice. And like I said, it's consistent all throughout the Bible. You find this in all of the prophets. You find this with Jesus. And if you wonder, is Jesus this harsh? Yeah, he is. Just go home and read Matthew chapter 23. When he calls the Pharisees on their hypocrisy for the exact same things. 
their greed for getting justice for the oppressed, for laying burdens on people that they really shouldn't. It's all throughout the Bible. This is the heart of God. This is why God was so angry. Okay, where did Israel go wrong? What did Israel forget? That's the second question. Christy and I like to watch crime drama on TV. Anybody else watch crime drama? No? So I've become a very good armchair detective and armchair quarterback. I'm a very good armchairing a lot of things. Um, but uh, in crime drama, what I've learned <laughs> as a detective is that when you show up at a scene, it's not just important to pay attention to the things that are there, but you also learn a lot from the things that are missing, the things that aren't there that should be there. And that's kind of what we're doing here as we look at Israel and we ask, what's missing? How do we learn about justice from what's missing in the life of the community of, of uh, northern Israel here? Well, Tim Keller uh, lists four facets of biblical justice, and I would say that every single one of these facets is missing from the life of Israel at the time. Biblical justice is characterized by radical generosity, universal equality, life-changing advocacy, and asymmetrical responsibility. We're going to talk about that last one next week, but maybe just leave that up for another minute. I know some people are writing it down. So we don't have time to cover all of that. That's Tim's sermon, not mine. And he does a much better job. If you want the manuscript, let me know and I'll send it your way. But I do want to touch on that first one, radical generosity, because it was missing from the life of Israel. And I think because they forgot about that, they got way off course. And I think that's what happens. We so often, it's the little things that we don't pay attention to or the things we assume. And suddenly we're heading down a completely wrong road. And that's what happens with Israel. They forgot this idea of radical generosity. Radical generosity for me is best summed up in this. They had forgotten the margins. Let me explain what I mean by that. They'd forgotten the margins. If you turn to Leviticus, and I know you do every morning when you wake up, there's actually some good stuff in there. If you plow through it, there's some weird laws, I know, but there's also some stuff in there that you're like, wow, this is like how many thousands of years old, and this is how the community was supposed to behave? I think we can learn from it. And here's one of them. There were laws about gleaning when you were harvesting, and the laws about gleaning teaches about radical generosity and justice. And you find them in Leviticus 19 or Leviticus 23. See, landowners were not allowed to harvest out to the edges of their field. That's really important. They weren't allowed to maximize their profits for themselves. And then later, out of their great wealth, give a little bit in philanthropy to the poor. That's not how it worked. They weren't allowed to maximize their profits in the first place. They have to, had to leave the margins, the edges of their field, so that both their hired workers and the poor could come and glean and get enough food for what they needed. In Deuteronomy 24, it says it like this, and listen to these words. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you go in on your tractor and you've left a, a bale out there, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat the branches of your olive trees, you shall not go over the branches a second time. It shall be 
for the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes in your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the immigrant, the orphan, the widow. What an amazing <laughs> rule. What an amazing law for community social well-being. This is the law of radical generosity. It really comes down to this one phrase. The phrase is, it shall be for. What that literally means is this. It belongs to. Think about that for a minute. It belongs to them. It belongs to them by right. That's what he's saying here. And so you might say as a, as a farmer and you have your field, wait, wait a minute. That's my field. I purchased it. It's been in my generation or my, my family for generation after generation. I purchased the grain. I tilled the land. I planted the seed. I've taken all the risks. Therefore, I should get all the reward. And God says, that's not how it works. At least from a biblical sense, at least from a covenant sense, at least from this community sense, that's not how it works. First of all, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So don't you dare think that you actually own this outright. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Keep that in mind first. Secondly, you are a steward of all that I have given to you. And thirdly, the edges in your stewardship, they belong to the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow. That's the way that radical generosity is meant to work. So what did Israel forget? Well, they were harvesting to the edges, whether it was literally with their crops and everything else, but, but also spiritually, also emotionally, also physically. They were taking everything they could find and keeping it for themselves and their own self-interest. They weren't leaving the edges for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow. They took it all for themselves. They did not love their neighbor as they loved themselves. They simply loved themselves. And that's the issue. That's where they got off track and went down a road that was unjust. So we have to ask the question, when you hear about this, and you hear about leave the edges and leave the margins, and, and Christy and I had a great conversation yesterday about what that looks like even in our, in our married life, in our emotional life, in our financial life. How do you actually play that out? Because won't people take advantage of that? Yes, they will. Guaranteed. And so that's also why God gave another rule to kind of limit that. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says this. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you know, to take some of the edges, some of the margins, because you need it, you may eat all the grapes you want, but don't put any in your basket. Isn't that interesting? Don't take advantage of them. I mean, that's for you. It's yours. But take what you need to eat. Don't take a whole basket full and sell it down at market. That's not right. That's not just. That's not fair. This is a provision for you, absolutely, but don't take advantage. It goes on to say, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick up kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to the standing grain. You can't go and make the margins bigger than what they are. So don't you just love that? There's, there's this call to radical generosity and stewardship, really, but there's also a provision of protection so it doesn't get taken advantage of. And it's in that balance that we find justice and living justly with one another. It steers us away from individualism by saying that the vulnerable in society have a legitimate claim to our wealth, 
because it actually belongs to God and we are stewards, but it also steers away from this kind of radical socialism because the goal is not state redistribution of wealth, but the goal is actually to love God and love our neighbor. And so this is the core of biblical justice and what it looks like and the practical implications of it. So if we want to practice justice, we cannot harvest life to the edges. We can't harvest life to the edges. And we talk about that even emotionally, not just financially. If we're always harvesting life to the edges, if we're always taking everything before us just for ourselves, we will not be able to behave justly in this world. We need to leave some of the margins, not as a philanthropist giving a little bit here and there, but actually because it belongs to others. That's a scary prospect, actually, when we think about it and try to apply it. Well, when our girls were little, oh, Kira, I should have warned you about this before I did it, but it's, it's a good story. You'll love it. I think. Um, when, when our girls were little, I loved it at Christmas time. And if you've been around kids at Christmas or you were a child at Christmas, even if there's very few gifts under the tree, there's still a kind of an excitement, right? And so our girls would be very excited, would run in, and uh, they would open their stockings first. And I have this on video. It's an excellent video. <laughs> and uh, Kira knows right away what I'm talking about. And uh, Kira and Triona, they went in, they grabbed their stockings, and for some reason, they dumped both of them out at the same time, so there's a big pile. Christine does a great job of dividing them up equitably, you know, evenly, justly, so that they have the same kind of things. But suddenly there is this big pile. Triona was older, a little more aggressive, and so she managed to grab all of the chocolates. Like, I'm talking all of them. She grabbed them all, and she held them like this, and then she took like three chocolates and said to Kira, here you go, these are yours. And Kira, being the kind soul that she was, says, thank you. <laughs> I think sometimes that's how we treat generosity. Sometimes that's how we treat generosity. Um, we, we just grab. We grab all the resources we can. We grab all the stuff that we can. And then when we're ready and in good time and what we determined, we maybe give a little bit out here. And we expect a thank you in return because we're so generous. But that's not the radical kind of biblical generosity that we find that's at the heart and the core of justice. justice. The Bible says no. Others in particular the poor, the vulnerable in our society, have a legitimate claim to our resources and wealth. I know that's going to cause some conversations, I hope, around the coffee table. What does that look like? How does that happen? I think of my mom right now in a subsidized housing in her senior years in need of help, and I don't see it as, hey, all of us who are still working, she should give us all a thank you. For that, because aren't we being generous? No, I think biblical generosity and justice says she has a right to a portion of our wealth together. Not because she's earned it, but because it's hers. We leave some in the margins, some room at the edges, so we don't consume it all for ourselves. That's, that's what we're trying to get at here. Even as we give to the church or give to another charity, uh, we're not meant to give as, as some great philanthropic act. We're meant to give to remind ourselves not to consume everything for ourselves so that we don't get off track and so that we don't learn injustice by being so greedy. 
That's why God calls us to tithe, calls us, calls us to give, so that we don't consume life to the edges. Because when we do that, there's no room for justice. So Israel had forgotten generosity as a principle of justice. They were harvesting to the edges. Let's not follow that example. Instead, let's practice radical generosity, even though it's dangerous, even though we have to work through it, even though it's sometimes taken advantage of, by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And this is the hallmark of biblical justice. Let's pray together. Father, even saying these words today out loud is difficult. You know the, the sort of greed and the, the sense of self-preservation that we naturally have. But we pray that we might be supernaturally transformed by your Spirit in order to act and behave in a way that not only honors you, but loves our neighbor as ourselves. Father, these are, are difficult times, and it's hard for us to understand exactly how to live now. And so we need your wisdom. We need your courage. We want to be your people in this place, giving hope to the nations, even as we struggle. In Jesus' name, amen.